0: Welcome to the Spot On Podcast, brought to you by MScan, the Melanoma Skin Cancer Advocacy Network. The show gives you a baseline understanding and knowledge about skin cancer to help navigate that journey ahead through diagnosis and treatment. In this episode, we look at the patient story, John Mason, who spent much of his life outdoors around rural Australia and currently living off-grid in Queensland. John was diagnosed with Merkel cell carcinoma, MCC which is a rare but aggressive form of skin cancer that can easily spread to other parts of the body if not diagnosed early. Australia has a higher incidence of MCC than other countries around the world and it's likely caused by an increased exposure to UV radiation. John tells us candidly about his diagnosis, treatment and treating team, the regional approach to care, and comes out the other side a changed man, grateful, humble and incredibly positive. Here's John.
1: I just wanted to say thank you for the opportunity to talk about my experience. I see that as a wonderful chance. I'm 73, semi-retired. I live in regional Queensland on a block outside Bundaberg. We're off-grid here, so right now I'm talking to you, Gratis of the Sun. We run off solar panels, married, four grown-up sons, and loving life
0: i got to say, it's an audio-only podcast, but the scene that you're joining from here, it's unique. You're certainly not in the CBD of Brisbane, put it that way, I can tell. So I think that's going to give flavor to this conversation as well. But we're talking a bit about your story with skin cancer, with Merkel cell carcinoma in particular. Let's start to understand it a little bit more. Firstly, take me on that journey. When were you first diagnosed with Merkel cell carcinoma?
1: The diagnosis covered about three or four months, Peter. It commenced when I noticed a small lump just below my left ear. I had been going in to see my general surgeon to get an occasional lesion cut off. I've had a lot of sun exposure over the years, a lot of outside work. So I just mentioned it on the way out of the door. By the way, there is something else. I've got this little lump. He went, oh, let me feel that. He said, oh, I think we're going to get a biopsy on that. So he wrote me out a referral. I went and got a biopsy, came back a week later that it was an aggressive tumour, malignant. The general surgeon said, oh, gee, they get it wrong sometimes. That's unusual, but it is in your parotid gland, which is part of your lymphatic system. So I'm going to send you back. So I went back and got a second biopsy. It came back the same. So the decision was, this occurred in about November 2021 that I go to the Princess Alexander Hospital, which you know is in Brisbane, and have a surgical excision excision of the tumour. Christmas, New Year in between, it was early February. In fact, the day Brisbane flooded was the day I had my operation at the PAH. That went really well. I was only in hospital two nights. I did a great job. I went back to Bundaberg when the roads were open. I was stuck in Brisbane for a week. Now we're talking late February last year. I was due to go back to the pH to commence chemo. I was met by a gentleman that sat me in a consulting room and said, I have an eighty percent belief you are suffering Merkel cell carcinoma. And I went, All right. Well that's surprising. What's that? The it all began. And late February last year it was conclusive that I had uh, a Merkel cell carcinoma.
0: You mentioned that it was just that excision, the biopsy that was taken to then determine that you had the Merkel cell carcinoma and a few rounds of pathology, right?
1: The pathology worked out I had a malignant tumour. A sample from the excise tumour in February, it was done in Sydney actually, in a lab in Sydney, showed conclusively it was Merkel cell. So that's why it took two, three months.
0: Yeah, okay. What was that like? You've got that diagnosis. What impact did it have, not just you, but the people around you as well?
1: Well, my wife and I were devastated. Well, of course, immediately I got out of the consulting room. I got a Merkel cell and I saw that the numbers, as they say in the medical field, the numbers are particularly bad. It's a particularly aggressive tumour. I won't go into what the survival rates are. It's too depressing. But it's funny, Peter, although I saw that, I went, my God. Of all the tumours to have, this is one of the worst. I always felt right thing the day one, the very morning that Dr. Zhu gave me the diagnosis late February last year, I had this sense that it was going to be all right. I was in good hands. The people looking after me really knew their job and I, m- maybe not relax, but certainly work with them and be comfortable in their expertise.
0: That's interesting, the support of your treating team help provide that reassurance quite early on in this particularly important time of need. That's pretty powerful.
1: It's extremely powerful because it is a very confusing, very scary time. No matter how hopeful one is, there's moments where, oh my God, am I going to come through this? But I noticed from day one, even the general surgeon in Bundaberg, he got on the phone, he phoned around. All his surgeon mates to see whether anyone could remove the tumour in Bunbury. No one would touch it because it's tricky. That particular location is tricky because of the nerves in the face. But that's fine. He got in contact with PAH. They responded yes, send him down. I started seeing the ENT people. Surgery happened in lightning fast time. I was high priority, of course. Before I knew it, diagnosed with a problem in. It was late November, and then being operated on about fifth or sixth Feb from memory, is lightning fast. Then after I was put on the IMAT trial, which is the trial to determine whether a immunotherapy is useful for people with earlier stage Merkel cell. I know it's good with stage four, but they wanted to know oh, I'm slightly three one. Well, 3A, I think. Yeah, 3A. That's the reason to trial. Now, once they are on the trial, my goodness, I was being treated by Genesis Care in Bundaberg, who did the radiotherapy. I went to Cancer Care at Bundaberg, who looked after the immunotherapy. I was forever at Bundaberg Base Hospital. I had to see pathologists. I had to see regular CT scans, and I had the sense—not sense—I had this realization when I walked into an agency. They knew who I was. They knew what was going on. They knew what had been done previous. You have got me talking about this because you said something like, that must be very important. It's absolutely fundamentally important because if you believe that everyone's on the same page in helping you, then you can assume that everyone is doing their darndest to get you better. Why? Because they're talking to one another. They're not. In little silos, that seamless integration of the various healthcare agencies is a big plus in my treatment, and I'm very thankful for it.
0: That's so good that there's been that continuation through, right from the start, it sounds like, from the GP and the pathology, and then through to the different specialists, oncologists, through the different organizations. They're not even in the same building, but they know what's going on. I hear too often of patients with different experiences that feel like a number, yeah.
1: Not mine. No, no, that hasn't been my experience for one moment. And you said different buildings. A lot of my caregivers live 400 kilometers apart. A lot of people in Brisbane were helping me and a whole team in Bundaberg. They did know all about me and I never had to explain, oh, this is what has gone. Yeah, I went to pathology last week. They knew. They had the results. So people were talking to one another to help me get better.
0: John, this is happening in difficult financial times globally right now. So what you've just described in terms of the multiple stakeholders and tests and things sounds pretty expensive in terms of the impact for you. Can I ask, was there a significant financial implication to you?
1: There was. I'm semi-retired. I do part-time work. I actually do data analysis for Monash Uni right here in my funny little solar-powered office. (laughs) I'm also a student. In my last year of PhD, I was bringing a bit of money in doing the data analysis. I was helping friends to barter, to help. They did a bit for me. I did a bit for them. All they had to stop during treatment. So yeah, I'm very thankful with the regional approach to my treatment. My wife could continue working. She wasn't having to come down to Brisbane to support me while I was undergoing treatment. We continued living in our home. Our listeners can't see, but I, yeah, semi-complete on <laughs> <laughs> You mean? Yeah, we lived our life as we usually do. The difference being, I didn't spend my day studying or writing a thesis or looking after ducks and geese. I spent it getting better.
0: When you say your regional approach to care, that's really interesting. You mean utilising things like telehealth?
1: Not at all. Oh, we did use telehealth on a number of occasions. I meant the treatment. The expertise, the hardware was right here in Bundaberg, 40 minutes away, not four and a half hours away. That's what I mean by regional approach. It wasn't just talking by Health; it was me getting treatment.
0: Because otherwise, coming to Brisbane and then you'd have to, it's not just the travel there, then you've got to set up accommodation and stay somewhere else. And then the back and forth that there's, for a single treatment will be a long time, yeah.
1: Yeah, it's a real nightmare. The example I would give was the, the afternoon I met Dr. Zhu and got the news that I did have Merkel cell. I got up at 3 a.m. to get down to the station in time for a 6 a.m. departure. The train was late, so I got to Rome Street and running around trying to find an Uber to get me out to PAH. I arrived about 10 minutes before the scheduled appointment, and he came out on time because I was the only person he was seeing on that particular day, all that revs you up. You know, you're tired. You're not thinking straight. I certainly knew I approached treatment, especially radiotherapy, after four or five hours on a train and a 3 a.m. start. I would have been exhausted before I started the treatment. So being able to receive the treatment, 40-minute drive away, was absolutely everything to me.
0: So, that sounds really important. The ability to do things in an area other than the major capital cities is really important. Back to this point about the treating team too and the clinicians, it sounds like a really personable approach. Is there anything that you can pinpoint or say is the most important aspect of that relationship to be positive between, say, a clinician and a patient that would have contributed to that relationship?
1: Yeah, well, for me, that's a good question. And of course, for everyone, that'd be a different answer. But for me, I believe the most important element in developing a trusting, effective, solid relationship with my carers was that they afforded the opportunity for me to give voice to what was going on and to listen. And I know they're extremely busy people. I've got to wait half an hour and there's a whole line of people after me. So every moment I'm in there means someone else has got to wait, who's also ill, maybe more ill than I am. Nonetheless, that few moments, that few instants to share what's going on and my feelings, not just a recount of signs and symptoms, but a bit of a story about how I'm feeling about things, whether I'm positive or not so positive this week and so on. That meant a lot. And I think there should be more of that within the medical industry, personally. I would agree with you.
0: And that's great advice for clinicians as well, who obviously busy individuals and there's lots going on, but there's the power, the impact that not personal touch, but the engagement and time spent in building that rapport and listening is definitely time well spent. Thinking then from, I know there'd be patients as well, listening that patients or carers or people interested who might've received a diagnosis for skin cancer, maybe Merkel cell carcinoma. But those that are interested in the treatments you had to receive, I think you touched on a few of them through, but you mentioned you had the excision, you had some radiotherapy?
1: Radiotherapy first.
0: Yeah. So talk to me through some of those main blocks of treatment that you had to
1: receive. Okay. Firstly, the surgical excision was easy. I went down, I had two nights after the op that was it, and I was discharged. The team knew what they were doing. The surgeon seemed very capable. He was personable. He listened to me, asked about how I felt, and just inquired about some of the symptoms I was having. He came the next morning after the off and checked that I was doing well, and on the morning, I was discharged. He also came on his rounds. The wound healed very quickly, and according to the surgeon that performed the excision, it went really well. So the surgery was very straightforward. The wound healed in a week. It was amazing. So I was back in Bundaberg and then I got the news it was in fact the Merkel cell and the treatment plan went from chemo to a mixture of radiotherapy initially for six weeks and then that was every day, every working day for six weeks and then immunotherapy for six months and that was twice a week for a couple of months and then once a week and then once every fortnight, they tapered me off it.
0: Just out of interest, like the radiotherapy every day for six weeks, how long was
1: each session each day? The one weren't long sessions. I'd wait a fair bit because a lot of folks getting radiotherapy. That was at Genesis Care. They've got a big radiotherapy unit in Bundaberg. My time actually getting treatment, radio treatment would be five minutes.
0: Right. There's all that before and after, like the-
1: Before and after, but I found the radiotherapy really, really hard. I got dry throat. I couldn't taste food. My taste changed after the radiotherapy. Completely different sense of taste. Anything with salt, I go, oh, God, it's so salty, but it's the same now. of salt as before. There's certain foods I just don't touch now because if it's processed food and it's salty, I should I'm not eat that. At the end of the six weeks, I was really glad to be off radiotherapy. It was hard. I had a bit of a burn on the side of my face where I was receiving the treatment, not sleeping well, not eating really well. I can't eat soup. I couldn't chew or swallow. So that, yeah, that was a hard gig. But once again, the radio oncologist, he kept reassuring me, no, it's normal. Everyone gets despondent toward the end. Two weeks to go, and then it was one week to go, only two days to go. And then it was one last day before I knew it. Then I had a break, you know, if not long, about a week, and then I commenced immunotherapy, which was like the surgery, really easy. I rocked in to cancer care, waited a, not long, 10 minutes, went into a unit where there was little other cancer patients receiving either chemo or immunotherapy. The nurses were lovely. Volunteers came around and gave me a cup of tea and a sandwich. The immunotherapy took longer. It was usually by the time I sat down and got the cannula put in, it was about an hour before I was out the door. Just to finish, Peter, I never felt after radiotherapy or certainly after immunotherapy that I shouldn't drive a car, that I shouldn't interact with people. I would often drive back and then lay down here at home, but I felt completely confident that I could drive a car and function as usual. The radiotherapy didn't make me very tired, I just would say that.
0: So then thinking about the impact of this on the rest of your life now, your relationships, your work, you mentioned a bit about the work and the finances and but like there's leisure and holidays and you've got the adult kids as well. Has there been an impact
1: there? There has, but paradoxically, it's been a positive impact. Peter, I'm far more involved with the idea of being on good terms with people and engaging with people on their terms. When you look mortality and your own mortality in the face, it's funny how things you felt important before become far less important. What jumps out at me? The simple things. Sitting down, having a nice chat with your loved ones. Things like I'm looking forward to Saturday night. We're having a a little barbecue to celebrate Easter down at the community hall with all all the other blockies, the people living on blocks, and the farmers, the cow cockies, as we say, the pastoralists. And before I go, oh, will I, won't I go? But now I go because that's important. That's important to engage with our fellow men and women. It's extremely important. I'm far more thankful. For the little things, as I say, just a cup of tea with someone you care about and like talking with is everything to me. I'm far less interested in the ambitious side of my life. Getting a PhD thesis written and submitted and accepted, that'd be really nice. I'll put a lot of work into it. This is my fifth year. Sorry, the beginning of my sixth year. So it's been a long, long process. And of course, I'd like to finish that. But if I don't, it's not the end of the world. I've still got my wife. I've still got my family. I still get to live in a beautiful part of Australia the way I want to live. I feel really fortunate. I feel humbled and grateful. The treatment, as I've said many times in this interview, is world-class. We are so fortunate in this country To have a healthcare system that is there for people like me that have got a serious illness that could potentially kill me. It has impacted me financially. It has impacted me certainly time-wise, but they seem less a consequence now looking back than they did looking forward at the beginning. I've changed. I'm far more humble man than I was 15 months ago.
0: Such valuable reflections that you can share from that experience and one, hopefully, that others could take away too. I know I certainly will. And it's a good stark reminder about what those important things are. So grateful for that. Thinking then about people that might be listening to this podcast that might have received a diagnosis themselves or they're caring for someone that has it, any other hints or suggestions for people trying to navigate that complexity?
1: Yeah, I've got a few, mainly because I feel in my heart that I navigated very successfully no matter what the outcome, the last fifteen months have been a successful time in my life. I've kicked goals. I've got the results. Number one is maintain hope. Never think, oh God, it's the end of the world. It's not. We've got a great healthcare system. There's people there who are highly trained and very passionate and extremely committed, and they're there to help you. If you work with them, that's really important too. Working with and negotiating your treatment plans and schedules and sticking to it. Don't say one thing and then go and do another. If you need to be at treatment tomorrow, will you get to treatment. It's the most important thing in your day. The other thing I think is, besides hope, is believe in those around you. You're going to believe in your loved ones because that's why you love them, because you believe in them. But you've got to also believe and trust the healthcare people that you maybe don't have very close relationship with. It's more of an acquaintanceship. But you've got to walk into their consulting room with a belief that they're really good at what they do. They're committed to helping you. The example I would give is when I first met my radio oncologist, and he was a big jovial Irishman. He is a big jovial Irish, lovely guy. And I said, look, I'm really interested in a full recovery here. I want to work with you. And he just looked at me straight in the eyes and said, John, so am I. That's what he said. So it wasn't, oh, how can we extend this guy's life? How can we make him comfortable? No, let's get him fixed up. Let's get rid of this thing. Let's cure him of this horrible cancer. That was always, certainly with him and with others, the attitude was, no, we can get on top of this. We're good at what we do. If you believe in that, that's helpful. It's probably the two main things that jump to mind, Peter, that maintain hope and maintain your trust in those around you and stick to what you agree to do. That's really important. Don't miss a session. If you can possibly get there, even if it's a consult, it's not treatment, get there. Because every instant you're in there talking to someone or receiving treatment from someone that knows their job, that's got to Add to your chances of a complete recovery. It's got to.
0: I imagine that would be like that kind of message and reminder would be particularly important in that week three or four of the daily radiotherapy or the constant kind of back and forth that feels like that valley of what's the point? I don't feel any different. In the scheme of things, not super long, but it's a hard road, but it's worth going through and doing those things that are recommended as part of the healthcare system.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Three weeks in, it was difficult. I, I had a lot of trouble even eating soup. But that's okay because I believed in what the radio oncologists and the technicians were doing and telling me. So that was all right. I've just got a weather storm, but the ship will reach port. Why? Because there's good pilots, in charge, there's a good captain, a good crew.
0: John, that's such a good message, and I think it's an important one for many to hear, either as a patient, a carer, or a clinician as well. We're extremely grateful for you sharing your experiences, and no doubt people in the circles might see you around and continue to advocate for such an important issue. I appreciate you making the time.
1: Oh, my pleasure, Peter. And once again, I want to thank you for the opportunity to tell my story, because it's part of my trip. Part of it was I came out of it feeling very grateful, very humbled, and I felt almost an obligation to spread good news about what can happen in this country. Rather than all the not-so-good news, there's some good news stories come out of, certainly out of my treatment. Thank you. Pleasure.
0: And that's it for another episode of the Spot On Podcast. Make sure you share this episode with a friend or family member if you think they'll get some value. MScan acknowledges the traditional owners and ongoing custodians of the land on which this podcast was recorded, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Remember that all the content discussed in these episodes is for information purposes. Please make sure you speak to a medical professional for advice relating to your own specific situation. This podcast is brought to you by the Melanoma and Skin Cancer Advocacy Network, MScan, who are providing a new, innovative approach to tackle Australia's national cancer. For more information, visit mscan.org.au.